Artaxerxes here. Let's uh, give our attention to God's holy word. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you would send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And now where we will be focusing our attention to the latter end of this chapter, we're going to be focusing here in verse uh, 9 to 20. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters, And now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, her servant, heard this, it it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. And I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And then I went up in the night by the valley and I inspected the wall. I turned back and I entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were, to do, who were there to do the work. And I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. We, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. 
The God of heaven will make us prosper. We, his servants, will arise and build. For if God is for us, then who can come against us? I wonder if you've ever had that feeling where you just have so much on your plate, so much going on that you feel like curling into a ball. You feel like looking at paint dry on the wall because you're not up to the task. It feels too monumental. It feels too big. Maybe some of you students who've just come through exam seasons can relate to that experience where you have all of the exams on your plate. You have all of these tests that you have to do and you're wondering how can you study for all this, all this material in one go. And it seems like it's a, it's a lot to have on your plate at one time and you almost feel crippled by it. You almost feel like I'd rather do nothing than even start part of it. Or maybe some of you parents, when it gets into the holiday seasons, you can speak of that experience where there's so much going on. There's so many activities, so many relatives you have to visit, so many gifts you have to give, and so much food that you have to make for all of the hospitality uh, that it can feel quite overwhelming. It can feel like there's just way too much going on, way too much on your plate, and you say, why don't we this year go and take a trip out into the Bahamas and spend two weeks down there and just have it easy for this holiday season? We can become crippled by the amount of work that stands in front of us. And Israel is very tempted here to shut down before they even begin because the work in front of them is ginormous. Nehemiah is for the first time touching down in Jerusalem and he sees the walls are in complete disarray. The gates are burned with fire. Jerusalem is in rubble. And we've seen some of those images coming back from Turkey. We're praying for our brothers and sisters down there. We're praying for the church down there. We're praying that God would use this situation in mighty ways. But think about what it would be like for them as they go back into their towns and they go back into their cities and they see it lying in complete ruin. Think about what it would be like from their point of view. What is it going to take to get this city back to what it used to be? What's it going to take to rebuild our area, our homeland? It would be overwhelming. It would be daunting. And that's the type of thing that Nehemiah is facing here in Jerusalem. He touches down. He sees the whole wall has been decimated. The gates are in flames. And he has to encourage Israel to strengthen their hands, to arise and to build, and to set themselves to this good work. And you know what I love about this text is when we hear Israel uh, speaking to Nehemiah, Nehemiah encouraging Israel, you don't see the Jews here saying, Nehemiah, this is all too much. This is far too much for us. They aren't overwhelmed by the situation, but rather by the end of it, they say, this is God's good work. We will put our hands to the task for God himself is behind us. I believe with the power of God's word and the encouragement that we hear coming through these pages, we too as a church can be encouraged in the work that we have to do in God's kingdom. Whether that be fighting for our children's faith, whether that be fighting for our marriages or fighting against some sin in your life that feels too big, too daunting, too monumental. With the power of God's spirit and the power of God's word, I believe we too can set ourselves to the challenge by saying if God is behind us, if God is in our corner, then this is a good work and we will arise and we will build in the power of his name. 
Let us arise and build. I want to speak of three points as we go through our text. The first is, if we are going to take up the challenges that lie before us, is we need to properly face them. We need to assess the problems. That's what Nehemiah does as he touches down in Jerusalem. The first thing he does is he gets an on-the-ground assessment of what is going on. Look at verse 13. And I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and I inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. Nebuchadnezzar had come in 586 with the Babylonians, that harsh and oppressive nation, and they had completely torn down Jerusalem. And you can read this account in 2 Kings chapter 25. It says that in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord in the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. That is, all the houses of the great. He burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem all around. The whole thing came down. This is in 586, and now Nehemiah is touching down in 444. So it's been a hundred years that Israel has been in this poor estate. He says, I'm going to go out there, I'm going to see how bad it is. And we can pinpoint his locations by the gates that he says he goes to. And when you do that, you see that Nehemiah is basically making a journey up the wall, and he's making a journey back down the wall. So two times he's going up the wall, he's going back down the wall, and we hear that he's inspecting the wall. Twice that term is used. It's not just a, a small little glance over, inspect is he's taking a careful attention. And he's thinking about what is it going to take to rebuild these walls? What supplies are going to be needed? What rubble is going to be, need to be removed? How many men are we going to need on this section of the wall? We read on one section, he comes to a gate that's so broken down, he can't even get his animal under it. And he would have taken note, this is going to need some extra men. This is going to need a few extra workers to help rebuild this section of the wall. He is carefully taking an analysis of the whole project as he makes his way around. And we can learn a lot from this. I remember when I was in counseling uh, courses in seminary, a lot of the times the professors would give the warning that you don't want to rush to giving out the medicine, to giving out the cure. They said you need to actually take the time to understand what the problem is. Because if you don't understand the problem, you can give a hundred different medicines And it's not addressing the real issue that is going on. And so they said you need to take time to listen to what they're saying, to collect data so that you can analyze, okay, what's at the root of this issue? What is uh, causing this, this, this issue to resurface again and again? And you can break down was it, what is it going to need to help deal with this issue? That's what Nehemiah is doing. He's taking his time. He spends three days as he gets down into Jerusalem to just assess everything that is going on. I want you to notice that he is personally doing this. He's not hiring a team. He's not sending out a bunch of leaders. He's not gathering people from the houses who are alongside the wall and saying, hey, can you give me a little bit of detail of what your section of the wall looks like? He himself 
is the one who is personally getting acquainted with it all. Verse 12, I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Verse 16, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews. And this was very uh, practical on his part, because it would have prevented him from being uh, sold or, yeah, looking for the right word here, maybe it'll come. Basically, People could have said, my section of the wall is really, really bad, and we're going to need some extra men. And Nehemiah would have been able to say, "Um, I've been to your section of the wall. It looks just like the rest of the wall. You're going to need about the same amount of men as everyone else. It would have prevented him from being maligned or sold uh, misinformation that would have hindered the project from going forward. Or he may have heard from someone, hey, my section of the wall, not too bad. It's going all right. And he would have said, I've been to your section of the wall. It's actually pretty bad. We're going to need a few men down there. It would have prevented him from being um, swayed one way or another by the gossip of the people around him. So he gets down and he gets practical. And think about this. Nehemiah is a cupbearer. He is a man who is from the palace life. And he is rolling up his sleeves here and he is getting down in the dirt. And he is facing the situation head on. I think the lesson we need to pull from this in our own lives is are we inspecting the walls? Are we inspecting the gates of our own lives? Because we all got rubble in our own hearts and in our own families, in our own communities. And one thing that God calls us to do as Christians is to have an open heart before God where we say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Help me to see through your word where there is weakness, where there is areas of my life that are broken down, that I'm allowing the devil and sin to overpower me and overrun my life. Help me to see where I have issues, where I have problems. Help me to recognize them. We need to face our problems. We need to recognize where we are living in sin so that we can properly address them. What do the walls look like in your life? What do the walls look like in your families or with your children? Are you protecting your spiritual life? Are you protecting your time of devotions? Are you protecting your prayer life? What about the gates? Gates were the stronghold of a city. We like to sing that song, right? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Those gates, those areas that you're letting information in through your eyes, through your ears, through the friends that you have. Is it leading you closer to the Lord or are they completely broken down? Are you letting in stuff that is ruining you, crippling you spiritually? We need to be, allow the word to reveal to us where we are in the wrong. Allow the word to inspect us so that we can get real with our problems and we can ask the help of God to intervene in our lives. That's the first thing that Nehemiah does when he gets down to the ground here in Jerusalem. Second thing he does is he encourages the work. Nehemiah sees how big this problem is. He sees it's going to take a lot of work. And he basically gives Israel a pep talk to encourage them to the talk, to the task. You know, children, what, what a pep talk is. A pep talk is when you got that football coach and he comes into the locker room before the game and he says, All right, team. We have a difficult opponent. This team has been winning every season of the game, but we've been training for this moment. We've been working for this moment. We've been putting in the practice. We've been putting in the hours. We're going to go out there, and we're going to win this one. 
It's a talk that encourages, that inspires action. And that's what Nehemiah is going to do. He's going to give them a talk to stir them up to the task that lies before them. And that's partly what Scripture is meant to do. Scripture is not just meant to be a talk for talk's sake that we leave on Sunday and we ignore the rest of the week. It's meant to have practical grounding that is to change the way we walk, to change the way we act, to change the way that we do things here in the world. It's meant to stir us to action for the glory of our King. And that's what Nehemiah gives here in the first place he begins with this talks. He gets realistic with the task that lies before them. Verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Nehemiah has taken a survey of the city. He has analyzed how bad it is, and he doesn't begin his talk by trying to cover that up, by trying to say, well, Israel, it's not actually all that bad. It's, uh, it may seem daunting, but once we get going, things are going to go quicker than you ever thought. He begins in a very realistic and honest place, and I believe all good leaders do this, where he says, Israel, you can see how bad this situation is as much as I can. And there is a lot of work here to do. And from that place of honesty, they can all then face up to the issues. And I believe in our churches, we don't need to be churches of cover-ups, of masks, of Instagram filters, where we're just coming in, we're acting like everything is okay, everything is all right. My Christian life is as happy as can be. That's not what God designed the church to be. The church ought to be the the place where we feel where we can be vulnerable with one another, honest with one another. I'm struggling with this. I've been dealing with depression. I've been dealing with lustful issues. I've been dealing with these, these problems, and I need help. And the church ought to be a place where we can be real with each other. God encourages us to be honest, to walk in the light with one another. And when we do, it's so beautiful how God uses that then to invite help where we can say to our brothers and sisters, hey, I know a really good resource for that. Or I know someone who's been through the same struggle as you, they can help you out. Or we can point them in the direction where they can actually get the help that they need to deal with their issues. But it starts and it begins with a place of honesty. From there, Nehemiah moves to encourage them, and he gives two reasons for why they should set themselves to the work. The one is a theological reason. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Middle of verse 17. I love this reason. He's saying, Jerusalem, this is God's city. This is God's chosen people. This is the, one, the place that God has set his eye upon, that he cherishes, that he loves. You are his prized possession. You were made for so much more than living in a city of rubble of being such a a small and and puny people. God has made us to be his holy nation, his prized possession. Let us arise and build so that the nations don't look at us and think what a pitiable nation that is. You're called to so much more is the line of argument that Nehemiah is giving. And we have that same call when you look in the New Testament. You are holy. You are set apart. You are chosen in Christ. You are his prized people, his bride. Don't languish and don't don't linger in sin. 
Don't linger in, in, in the mire of habits that you know don't belong to Christians. You're called to so much more. I remember that verse in the book of Proverbs is not for kings, Olamuel, to drink wine. You see the argument there? What Lemuel's mother is pointing out is you're a king. Your role, your office, your position, it's so much more dignified than for you to be out partying and out drinking with other people. You're called to so much more. And in the same way, Nehemiah says to the Jews, we are called to so much more, Israel. Let us arise and build so that the nations don't look at us and think, what a mockery, what a shame to be a part of that. It's not how the world ought to see the church. It ought to see the glory of what it means to have God on our side working within us. So he encouraged them with a theological reason. And then he gives proof that God is in their very corner, that he's working for them. Verse 18, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. He gives a theological reason, and then he gives proof of God's backing. And that's why I wanted to read the the first part of chapter 2. Nehemiah is praying for four months, day and night. He's praying for an opportunity with the king that he might have a discussion with the king to change his decree, to to change uh, uh, the, the, the reason that Israel could not build these walls, to change that decree. And God grants that opportunity. And he gets in a discussion with this king, he says, would you send me, would you be willing to allow me to go from here and to go down to Jerusalem? And the king grants that request. And then he asks for three more things. He asks that the king would give him passports so he can make his way down to Jerusalem. That the king would give him lumber so he could actually start rebuilding on the project. And that he would allow him the time and space to get the work done. And the king grants all of his requests. And so Nehemiah comes to the end of that chapter and he does not say, well, I'm glad I thought through that situation and by my intelligence I was able to win over the king. He says, you know what that means? It means God's good hand is behind me. And he brings that encouragement to the Jews here in Israel. He says, I know this is a bad situation. The walls are broken down. There is a lot of work to do. But I also know that God himself is behind this project. And he promised that if we repent, we turn to him, he would gather us from the furthest reaches of the heavens and bring us back to Jerusalem. That is what he is doing. And more, he has already put in my heart to work here in Jerusalem, and he's given me all that I need. God's hand is behind us. And when Israel sees that God's good hand is behind it, it moves them to say, all right, if God is here, if God is behind us, it doesn't matter how big or how towering this obstacle might be because he is with us and he will make us overcome. David Walls, commentator, says, Nehemiah reminded the people that God was alive and active on their behalf. And by pointing them away from their fears, Nehemiah focused their minds on what God is doing for them. And they realized for the first time in a long time that God is on their side. And that's when they become involved. And notice that as they did, the problem of a ruined city now became this good work. When our motivation is godly, our perspective becomes positive. I love this. Nehemiah could have come in and he could use a variety of different ways to try to motivate Israel. He could have guilt-tripped them. 
Israel, you've been sitting on these walls for a hundred years. What have you done? What, what evidence have I that you've, you've even started to work anywhere on this wall? He could have guilt-tripped them and made them feel ashamed of what they were doing to try to motivate them to the work. He could have came in like Pharaoh and told all of his leaders and his guards to basically whip Israel into action. All right, if we can't use words, we'll just slave drive them to start rebuilding these walls. That's not the method Nehemiah chose. In fact, he didn't even choose the method of trying to motivate Israel by rewards. He didn't say, hey, if you start working for me, I'll give you a two-week vacation down in the Caribbean. Because he knows that's not the strongest motivation that the people of God can have. Rather, he says, God is in our corner. God is behind us. And if he is for us, then we can do this task by his power. And you think of David, right, when he's coming to Goliath. It's the same thing. What motivated David to go out and stand against this huge giant? Do you remember what it was? You have Saul saying, hey, David, if you defeat Goliath, I'll give you my daughter, I'll give you half my kingdom. Is that what motivated David? You can read what motivated David when he got up to Goliath. He says, who are you to defy the living God? It was the glory of God that motivated David to get on the field and to face up to the giant who stood in his way. And Nehemiah in the same way says, if God is behind you, if if God is for us, let us arise to this monumental task because he can do all things. That's the motivation that he gives. And I see Christ doing this all the time with his church. To go back to the counseling room, oftentimes when people come into the church for counsel, they're in a crisis situation, and it's gotten really bad, and there's a lot that need, of work that needs to be done. And one of the most powerful motivations you can give them is to show how God is already at work. Not all the time, but sometimes you can see that God has actually genuinely broken their heart over this. He's made them feel sorry for what they've done. They're repenting. And that is always, that's all the sign that you need. If you see repentance, if you see someone turning to God and asking for his help, you can say, you know what? God himself is in your corner. And he'll give you all the grace that you need. He will give you everything you need for this challenge. And when people see for the first time God is behind them, then it doesn't matter how daunting the situation. They say, God will get me through this. Christ does this with his church, right? He comes with his word time and again, and he encourages us. Don't you see my hand? Don't you see my work? Don't you see what I'm doing in your lives among you, my people? You look at the book of Revelations. What's one of the first things Jesus says to the churches? Behold, I stand in your midst. I am right here among you. I am in your rubble, I'm in your mess, I am in your brokenness. Here I stand, and he encourages us to the work. And the same thing is encouraged throughout the Bible, that we are actually encouraged to encourage one another. If you look at the book of Hebrews, it says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as is the habit of of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We ought not just to to think about how Scripture encourages us, but we ought to seek ways, Hebrews says, to encourage one another in God's kingdom. Let's not resort to 
guilt. Let's not resort to shaming our brothers and our sisters. But let's think of ways where we can say, hey, I've been seeing lately that God has been doing something in your life. I've been noticing that he's been active in your life. Or I've heard something that you said the other week, and I just want to say what a blessing that was for me. And by sharing this and encouraging one another, we stir each other up to continue to labor on in God's kingdom, to continue to see God's hand that is behind us, and to be active in his work. Last thing I want to talk about is dealing with the opposition. We see uh, whenever God does something actively, the devil is going to react to what God is doing. And whenever you try to do something in the kingdom of God, you can expect that there's going to be opposition coming your way. That's exactly what happens as soon as Nehemiah even starts down to Jerusalem. The enemies have taken notice, and we read that they are greatly disturbed. That's in verse 9 and 10. But look, if you come down to verse 19, we see that two enemies have grown to three now. It says, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and they despised us. And they said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So as you notice in verse 9 and 10, when Nehemiah comes down to Jerusalem, it says that Sanballat and Tobiah heard it. They were displeased and they were, um, that someone would seek the welfare of the people of Israel. But now in verse 19, you have a new guy by the name of Geshem the Arab. So even more opposition is arising because they see that there are people coming down to Jerusalem to help rebuild these walls. And so it looks like there are enemies now on every side. You have Sandal in the north. You have Tobiah in the east. You have Geshem in the south. They are surrounding Israel and they are coming with an attack. They are mocking them. And they're saying, will you rebel against the king? And remember that King Artaxerxes was the first one to actually shut down the operation of rebuilding the walls. And so they are suggesting here that Israel in rebuilding these walls is going to invoke the wrath of the king to now come against them. And that if they rebel against the king, he will come down again and he will say, you're going to have to shut down this project. They're trying to make Israel live in fear and to paralyze them from doing the work. And Nehemiah comes and he addresses this, and I love how he addresses this. He says, the God of heaven will make us prosper, verse 20. And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. He doesn't reference, no, actually, I have the favor of King Artaxerxes behind me. I have the decree to say we are allowed to be here. He doesn't even deal with the accusation of the enemies. He knows they know about that. Rather, what he tells them is that God of the God of heaven is behind them. God's hand is in this. God is behind us. It's not that King Artaxerxes will make sure this project comes to, comes to pass, but the king of all kings who resides in heaven above, he will make us prosper. Since his hand is in it, we shall succeed. For the God who starts a good work will finish a good work to its end. And that's all the proof that he gives to his enemies. That's all the encouragement that we need. We don't need to listen to the voice of our world or our culture and let that paralyze us. But we can say God himself said he is going to make us prosper. If his hand is in it, his church will be built. And he will have a new Jerusalem coming down from the heavens adorned as a bride. 
So I want to encourage us here at the end to arise and to build and to set ourselves to the work of the kingdom of God. Because can we not see that Christ himself is here? Can we not see that God's good hand is here who would send his son to die on our behalf, to take away our, our sins, to give us all the grace that we need so that we may live in the power of his name, to provide us with the Holy Spirit, to gift us and to uniquely equip us to serve in his kingdom. His good hand is upon us here at Emmanuel, here in this church. He is raising up people to serve in his kingdom. Because Christ himself has told us, I will build my church. And even though the gates of hell are the opposition to it, it will not prevail against me. I am going to build my church. We have someone far greater than Nehemiah standing in our rubble. We have Jesus Christ who stands here beside us and within us. And he says, greater am I. Greater is he, right, that is in you than he that is in the world. Jesus has told us, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the evil one. And if he is in us, well, then through Christ, we shall be more than conquerors. Christ lives in his church. He lives in his people, and he is building his church. Look through the ages. Look in the past how he's been continuing to do this. How millions upon millions are coming into the church from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. And one day we will see myriads upon myriads of those who are clothed in the white robes of the Lamb. Because of what Jesus has promised. I am building my church. If God is in this, if he has started it, he will bring it to a completion. Not only your own personal journey of faith, but the entirety of his church. He will build through the ages until it is complete and every single one has their place in part in the great temple, the great church of Jesus Christ. Let us rise up and let us build for the glory of our King of all kings. Amen. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you to know that your good hand is upon us. We think of your love in sending Jesus Christ to die for our sins, to take our shame and guilt, and to supply us with everything that we need. We pray, O oh Lord, that today your voice would ring loudly in our ears, that we would understand and we would know that your hand is upon us, that we would know that Jesus Christ is in the midst of our trouble, in the midst of our problems, no matter how daunting or monumental they may seem, no matter how giant or monstrous they may appear as. That if you are with us, that if you are in us, nothing will stand in our way. For by the power of your grace and by the power of your spirit, we shall be more than overcomers through Jesus Christ our Lord. Bless us with that assurance, O Lord. Encourage your church today. And may we continue on laboring in your kingdom until, O Lord, we see the day where you come back on the clouds, taking us all back as your redeemed church, where we will sing praise to your name for what you've done forever and ever and ever. Let us look forward to that day and let us know, uh, let us be assured that you will bring it to its completion. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll get a glimpse of that new Jerusalem.